American Airlines Flight 11, a Boeing 767, took off from Logan Airport in Boston at 7.59 a.m. The flight, en route to Los Angeles, had 11 crew and 76 passengers on board. Tragically, at 8.46 a.m., hijackers flew the plane into the North Tower of the World Trade Center in New York, beginning what we now refer to as the September 11th attacks. At 9.45 a.m., one hour later, the Federal Aviation Administration ordered all civilian aircraft to land. The National Airspace System was officially shut down at 11.06 a.m. Meanwhile, in Canada, David Colinette, Canada's transport minister at the time, followed suit, grounding all flights in and out of Canadian airports. As these measures were being imposed, some 500 airplanes from around the world were en route to the United States. While planes with enough fuel were told to return to their airport of origin, the rest were diverted to airports across Canada. Fearing the attacks may not be over, Transport Canada instructed NAV Canada, the agency that handles air traffic control, not to direct planes to large urban areas, such as Toronto, Ottawa, and Montreal. And so planes on the very busy transatlantic route were diverted to airports in Atlantic Canada. Over the next few hours, more than 200 planes were diverted to Canadian airports. According to Transport Canada, over 33,000 passengers landed on Canadian soil. These passengers would be stranded for days and needed care and provisions. The outpouring of community support to care for these passengers would become a point of national pride, and later, the premise of an award-winning musical. Something that is a little hard to work into a musical number is where the supplies needed to care for them came from. You see, when large numbers of individuals are displaced, like in the days following September 11, great numbers of supplies like cots, blankets, generators, and medical supplies are needed, and those needs can overwhelm the resources of a community or a province's healthcare system. And that's where the Public Health Agency of Canada comes into the picture with a whole toolbox of emergency preparedness tools ready to help keep Canadians and visitors to Canada safe and healthy. Today, we're going to explore two such emergency preparedness tools, and I promise, no musical numbers from me. I'm Kathy Bowers, and you're listening to The Objective Lens. Emergencies resulting from conflicts, like the 9-11 example, are extremely rare in Canada, thankfully. But that isn't to say that Canada doesn't have to deal with its fair share of disaster situations. According to the Government of Canada, the past century has seen Canadians face about a thousand disasters. Most commonly, these events are meteorological or hydrological in nature. Things like floods, wildfires, or tornadoes but we have also faced technological disasters. Think industrial fires or air crashes and biological events like outbreak responses. Preparing for and responding to public health events is the responsibility of the Public Health Agency of Canada, or PHAC for short. The agency has a mandate to be prepared to respond to public health events, and there's a number of tools and, uh, and systems that we have in place that's the voice of Jean-Francois Dupere, 
the director of the Office of Emergency Response Services at PHAC. One of the emergency preparedness tools that Jean-Francois oversees is the National Emergency Strategic Stockpile. Well, the National Emergency Strategic Stockpile that, that we call the NES here, um, actually it's a program that uh, has been in place for many, many years. Uh, the program started actually in 1952, which is a long time ago, and it was created in the context of the Cold War. Uh, in those days, the federal government was really worried about the potential of uh, a nuclear exchange and the devastating consequences it would have on civilian casualties. So in those days, the government made the decision to, to start stockpiling health equipment and supplies to actually be able to provide medical and, and hospital care to the civilian population in, in such, a, such a, a terrible situation happened. A stockpile was a creative solution to the limitations of the era. At the time, there were significant lag times for manufacturing goods and limited transportation options to get supplies to an area in need. And the healthcare system, at the local level, had more limited capacity to respond to a large-scale emergency than it does today. The initial stockpile consisted of a variety of medical and social service provisions. Medical supplies consisted primarily of Casualty collecting units designed to provide frontline response at a rescue site. Advanced treatment centers designed to support triage and early life-sustaining treatment. And 200-bed, fully equipped emergency hospitals. On a recent trip to Ottawa, I took the opportunity to visit the Diefenbunker Museum. And the experience was like stepping back in time to the Cold War days. There was an exhibit in the museum that discussed this early iteration of the stockpile, and I got to see crates of lab glassware that was ready to be shipped to support basic health care in the event of a nuclear disaster. Had bombs started dropping, clearly the lab professionals of the day would be ready to respond. It was a pretty awesome experience, and the inspiration for this episode. As the risk environment changed over time, the NESS would need to evolve as well to continue to meet the needs of the threats Canada was preparing for. Uh, obviously, the risk environment has changed massively since then. Uh, we are not preparing for a massive nuclear exchange anymore. However, the risk environment has, has, has changed and the program has adapted to it. Um, the mandate of the program stays the same, though, which is to support our provincial and territorial partners to respond to public health. Uh, emergency. And as you rem- as you probably know, healthcare and public health is a shared responsibility in this federation. There is massive work being done by our provincial partner in terms of providing uh, healthcare services directly to the population. Municipalities are very much involved as well on, on public health. That said, there's a number of risks for which the likelihood of them to happen is very, very low. But if they do happen, the consequences would be extremely large. And typically, uh, based on, on, on the good use of resources, the province, territories, the municipalities will focus their effort on what they are more likely to face, and they're doing that. Uh, however, the preparedness for those very unlikely high consequences risk are not always uh, very well uh, established 
throughout the provincial systems. So that's where the federal government is developing capability to provide support uh, to the response of those risks. So if the NESS is meant to contain the supplies necessary to respond to the risk we face as a country, what situations are we preparing for? Well, there's, a, there's a number. Uh, clearly, in, in the 90s, um, we, we became much more aware of the risk related to pandemic flu. And we started to stockpile uh, a numbers of uh, personal protective equipment and so on. When we saw H1N1 and the arrival of antiviral as, in, in, as a, a medical countermeasure, we started to also to work with the province for the acquisition of antiviral. One of the major uh, game changer in our risk environment, though, was unfortunately the event that took place on September 11, 2001. At that time, we realized with shock that we are actually not protected from terrorist activities. And specifically from a public health perspective, we look at what are the risks associated with bioterrorism. Uh, when we started to look at that, at those specific risks, we realized that the level of preparedness was um, not adequate and, and required some, some, some investment and some work to be able to improve our ability to respond. And here I'm talking about uh, a numbers of agents that, although uh, they exist, we know they exist, they are not really uh, prevalent in our, in our environment. I'm talking about botulism, smallpox, anthrax, Ebola, just to name a few. And again, this is the type of risk for which we are assessing constantly. We are trying to... Um, measure what is the, the likelihood, the likelihood, the consequences, what are the intent of the actor and the capability of the actor that may want to use them against Canada or any of our allies. And based on that assessment, we are you know, making procurement and stockpiling some asset that would be needed to support the response. The threat of bioterrorism has caused an expansion of the NESS to include chemical, biological, and nuclear countermeasures. Since 2001, the majority of NESS purchases have been pharmaceuticals. Medical countermeasure, vaccine, treatment, uh, are a, a significant component of our stockpile, but it's not the only one. Um, we are also uh, maintaining what we call mini-clinic, which are, which are highly portable and, and uh, scalable uh, triage units. And they can be used in a number of scenarios. They can be used to support small communities that have been impacted by natural disaster uh, in, 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 a few, uh, in a few circumstances. Actually, we have developed mini clinic, deployed mini-clinic in the north. Uh, we have deployed mini-clinic on First Nation community. We have deployed mini-clinic in plan event where we knew that very large number of people would gather together and that the healthcare infrastructure in that location was not sufficient to cope with that. Actually, very recently, uh, to support the J7 summit in Charlevoix. The NESS has been deployed over 100 times in the last 25 years. Most of those deployments, about 40%, have been in response to meteorological or hydrological events, like the Red River floods in Manitoba in the 1990s. 
about 15% of the deployments are in response to technological disasters, such as the Swiss Air crash off the coast of Nova Scotia in 1998. Another 15% of the deployments are due to biological events, such as the response to the SARS and H1N1 outbreaks. While the mandate of the NESS program is domestic, supplies from the stockpile have been deployed internationally to assist in public health events. Health supplies have been deployed most often to respond to conflicts or geological events. The tsunami in Southeast Asia in 2005 and the earthquake in Haiti in 2009 are examples of where the NESS has assisted in a global response to a catastrophic event. As Jean-Francois mentioned, there are a lot of different assets that make up the strategic stockpile, and storing these assets is not quite so simple. Our assets that we're storing are quite different. In when we are maintaining medical countermeasure, for example, we have to maintain vaccine, uh, treatments, and they all have a various range of storage conditions. Some vaccine that we're storing have to be maintained at minus 80 degrees. Um, so some are maintained at minus 25 degrees and, and so on. Most importantly, in some cases, those are very unique products that you will not find in the healthcare system. So we have to pay very, very, very close attention to the actual um, environmental condition for the stockpiling. And of course, we also have large warehouses. They are located in a number of places in the country where we are maintaining our, what we call our dry asset beds and, and blankets. And we have also deployed a mini clinic in a number of, uh, of sites. As, as a program, uh, we're not the first responder. This is the, the work of municipality and, and province to some extent. Um, and as a service standard, because we're the third line, we are prepared to reach and touch a community in 24 hours after they have uh, made a request. Of course, we're bending over backward to, to make it as fast as possible, but our service standard is 24 hours. So in order to meet that service standard, we, did, we, we made a very deep analysis of the road network in Canada and where do we need to be located in order to reach and touch the Canadian population in our communities. So based on that analysis, there's a there's six sites, six cities in the country for which we are uh, we have a logistical hub from which we can distribute our asset. I asked where exactly the warehouses are. I was curious. I couldn't help myself. I was politely informed that this wasn't information that is publicly shared. You guessed it. It's a matter of national security. I only mention it because being told that is one of the coolest things that's ever been said to me. It was a very Jack Bauer moment. So, from six cities, they can reach anywhere in Canada within 24 hours. That's pretty impressive. But how exactly do they make that happen? First of all, uh, we have a very close relationship with our provincial partners, with uh, our other federal departments. They know how to reach us. So. It's not, we're not a program where every Canadian is, can, can give us a call and, and ask for asset. We're really working with our recognized partners at the provincial level, at the governmental level, and also with some non-NGOs, um, uh, non-governmental organizations. 
so they know how to reach us and we can be reached and 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 um, 24 7 365 days a year uh, and they know how to contact us when we receive a request to be honest with you specifically when we're talking about natural disaster often we we are expecting a call because we watch the news on a regular basis as well and we are sensing the environment uh, in some cases we call them first to say are you okay do you need help um, but when a request is made, depending on what the request is for, uh, if the request is for a, a, an urgent um, you know, support for medical countermeasure, we have mechanists to be able to leverage a plane from the government of Canada to move it by plane if needed. Uh, if the request is for heavy and bulky assets such as beds, uh, then we have arrangement with trucking companies so that we can actually take the asset at the best location to support that, that event and, and get them rolling. So planes, trains, and automobiles. PHAC will do whatever they need to do to get the supplies to the community who needs them. So maybe we can all sleep a little sounder knowing that. We can also sleep easier knowing that emergency planning is a continuous process where there are systems in place to continually reassess the public health risks we face and what we need to prepare for. Stockpiling can be a very costly business, so we want to stockpile the right things for the right risk. Um, we have a rigorous process within the federal government and also within the public health, uh, the, the public health agency of Canada to systematically and consistently assess our risk environment. And uh, on a regular basis, we're going to, we, we are uh, identifying a risk for which we are assessing the likelihood and the potential consequences. And we do that with consultation with partners, uh, mainly um, specifically when we think about risks that are related to bioterrorism. Uh, of course, getting the perspective from our intelligence communities and security communities is very important. So it's through that process that we are identifying the likelihood and the consequences for specific scenarios for which uh, we are identifying what will be the capability required to address those risks. And when we identify those capabilities, we also factor in what exists in the, in the system and where are the gaps and what is the right contribution from the federal government to to the development of those capabilities. And based on that, all that analysis inform our stockpiling strategy. And we're actually prepared for a lot. Here's a list of the components of the NESS. Emergency hospitals. Advanced treatment centers. These were designed to provide limited medical and surgical procedures in the field and support the movement of patients to other healthcare facilities trauma kits, mobile feeding units, reception center kits. These were designed to provide the materials for evacuation centers and shelters, quarantine units, social service supplies, such things like beds, blankets, generators, flashlights, bottled water, etc. CBRNE, that stands for Chemical Biological Radionuclear Explosive Supplies, that includes antidotes for things like anthrax or smallpox, auto-injectors of atropine and diazepam, skin decontamination lotion, 
potassium iodine tablets, basically the essentials for responding to a terrorist incident. Pandemic response supplies, that includes antivirals, personal protective equipment, and ventilators. And mini-clinics. These are portable clinics designed to supplement existing medical care facilities should a disaster overwhelm their system. All of that stored and organized, ready to deploy by air, rail, or truck in 24 hours to anywhere in Canada. That's a pretty impressive system. I asked Jean-Francois if it's enough if we are prepared enough for the public health threats we face? It's a difficult question to answer because there is no end on how prepared can you, you can be. Um, I would say that we have, made, we have capability to respond. We have plans to respond. Uh, are we consciously prepared for all type of situation, for all type of circumstances? Well, we are as prepared as, as we can be. Uh, with the resources that we're investing in that preparedness. Um, I, I would say that there is enough mechanics and there's a large numbers of very good people out there. Um, and, and we have more resilience than sometimes we think in terms of how to address difficult situation. So um, although we may face situation that will be very difficult to manage, that will that will stress our system and, and challenge us, um, we have mechanisms in place and we have the tools to be able to respond. Jean-Francois mentioned that PHAC has a number of emergency response tools at their disposal. The NESS is one, and it's focused on the things the supplies we might need in an emergency. I'd like to shift focus to another PHAC tool that is less about the things and more about the people, the health professionals that are needed in an emergency. So MERT, stands for the Microbiological Emergency Response Team, is a team of microbiologists that are ready and able to deploy both nationally or internationally to biological events of concern. And uh, a biological event of concern can be an outbreak situation, but MERT is actually more focused and partners with our security partners. So we're focused on potential bioterrorism response or potential um, events where biological agents, uh, and again, the, the example many people think of is anthrax, where it could have been used for harm. And we do this in partnership with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, with the RCMP, as we're members of a team that the RCMP leads, and the team name is the National CBRNE Response Team. That's the voice of Dr. Cindy Corbett. Dr. Corbett is the director of the Bacterial Pathogens Division at the National Microbiology Laboratory in Winnipeg. That's Canada's only containment level four laboratory, which allows public health professionals to work with the most dangerous pathogens, like Ebola. Dr. Corbett directs and leads the Microbiological Emergency Response Team, as well as the Canadian Laboratory Response Network. The Canadian Laboratory Response Network is an integrated lab network in partnership with provincial laboratories that have containment level three facilities. And again, that's the level of containment for things like anthrax and, and the plague, um, such that we have testing capability across the country um, with similar assays. So, we have similar responses um, from coast to coast for potential biological security agents um, within our public health laboratory system. 
The need for a microbiological response team emerged after the 2001 anthrax attacks in the United States. Known as Amerithrax, from its FBI case name, the attack saw letters containing anthrax spores mailed through the U.S. postal system to several news media outlets and two U.S. senators. The attacks left 17 people infected and five dead. In the aftermath, there was a heightened awareness of the potential of biological attacks or bioterrorism. Canada had a similar incident around the same time and it exposed a gap in our emergency preparedness. We had a white powder on the, on the East Coast and at that time the CLRN was not fully in effect and we could not arrange to get that sample to Winnipeg for testing. So some, I was not here at the time, but scientists that were here at the time purchased suitcases, packed up their laboratory kit, and off they went to the East Coast. And they worked with the local uh, public health and local public health laboratory, and they triaged uh, that specimen right on site to enable um, the scene to be cleared and it, and it to be declared safe. So that kind of was the humble beginnings of MERT, the the need for the capacity to go um, across the country. So that experience identified a need to send expertise and testing capabilities into the field. And the Microbiological Emergency Response Team, or the MERT, is just that. It's a team of infectious disease experts with specialized laboratory equipment that can provide rapid on-site detection, identification, and characterization of unknown biological agents. And the MERT evolves from there. So we have evolved um, in uh, both our training and our program as well as in our response capabilities. We now have a state-of-the-art mobile containment level three facility that we have deployed um, to mass gathering events. Again, so that is a facility on, in a truck that is to containment level three standards, so we would have the ability to work with things like anthrax and pestis within it. And what this mobile laboratory provides us with are laboratory fixtures and structures like you would see in a fixed lab. So the lab technicians now have biological safety cabinets to work in. They have um, glove boxes uh, so uh, that we can safely work in and everything is under full containment, as well as it provides a secondary containment for the entire lab team. And so what secondary containment for the entire lab team gives us, rather than just a glove box that you might find in kind of that um, lab, in a, or lab in a suitcase, is the ability to do other types of testing technologies as well that would require equipment that wouldn't fit into a defined glove box. So we have the containment level three lab that is on wheels. We also have a mobile lab that's in a shipping container. So if you think of a, a train car, um, it's kind of the steel box that is on top of a train car is what our mobile, our second tier of mobile lab is. And that can actually be taken by um, flight to, to places. So it has actually, we've taken it to the United Kingdom on exercises as well across Canada on exercises on, on aircraft, and it as well provides that secondary containment and those fixtures for the laboratory technicians to conduct um, more procedures uh, within them. 
the beauty of these two labs as well is they give us the ability to do high throughput analysis. Um, so we can do many, many samples in a short time, and um, which is an advantage over a lab in the box. A lab in the box, we can get there faster. In our smallest footprint, we have enough to do and conduct testing for about 150 samples, which is well enough um, to do an initial testing and, if required, bring in one of the larger labs. We can't delve into detail about the MERT's technical capabilities because, well, this is another instance where we encounter a national security issue. If we disclosed exactly what MERT can detect and how, we'd be inadvertently pointing out what it cannot. So I'll let Dr. Corbett give you a high-level look at the MERT's capabilities. Uh, within the mobile laboratories, essentially we're on site and we can detect and identify a variety of microbiological agents at the scene or at the, or at the site. Um, typically, there will be a molecular approach, but the larger labo laboratories also gives us the ability to do secondary testing and further phenotypic testing as well. Also, one of the advan um, advantages of being on site is the ability to detect and detect to treat. So if we are doing, say, um, site security for a mass gathering event, uh, one thing about bio is you can't see it with your naked eye, you can't smell it. Um, so how do you identify a crime scene with a biological agent? Well, you detect and identify with a team such as the microbiological emergency response team. So we are there to provide these services to the RCMP, either as part of um, a mass gathering or high-profile security event, or in the case where there is an unknown situation happening and they need biological triage uh, for that. So we look for signature sequences of unique pathogens to determine if they're present in the environment. Dr. Corbett spoke about some of the different ways that the Merck can deploy. But there is one type of deployment that caught my attention as being particularly Canadian. So MERT um, is always prepared to respond. Um, so for a quick MERT deployment for a potential unknown where there's no local or regional testing capacity that might be a threat for the national security or the public health of Canadians, we're constantly ready to, to deploy and work alongside to conduct a biological triage um, if required. For this type of deployment, though, we would use something that looks more similar to our humble beginnings. We have a laboratory kit that is ready, including um, glove boxes and containment tents. And essentially what that looks like now, instead of um, suitcases, we have tactical bags. But because we're from Winnipeg and it's very wintry here much of the year, um, we kind of akin it to lab in a hockey bag. Is there really anything more Canadian than that? I'll let Dr. Corbett tell us more about this lab in a hockey bag. Oh, we can triage for a variety of biological agents with the lab in the hockey bag, um, including bacterial, viral, um, some protein toxins as well. And um, again, with the lab in the hockey bag, we do have uh, safety equipment with us. Um, to conduct this work safely, and we ha it 
our smallest footprint, like I mentioned, we can do approximately 150 samples, uh, which is more than enough to conduct wilt steer mounting a larger response if it was required. Much like my conversation with Jean-Francois, Dr. Corbett stressed the importance of constantly evolving to meet the changing risk environment. And the MERT has that ability as well to adapt and change as new bioterrorism threats come to light or new pathogens pose a significant public health risk. I asked Dr. Corbett how the MERT stays ahead of the curve in terms of testing capabilities. The key, it turns out, is its link to the National Microbiology Lab and the expertise they can tap into. Looking at the different technologies that are coming out, what and, and when I say platform technologies, what I mean is think, typically things that we utilize here for bioresponse are what I would call open platform, which means we can put our novel assays onto them. We do not require to wait for a vendor to create a package and buy it off the shelf. So that is also a great thing about the National Microbiology Laboratory, although I'm just talking about the Microbiological Emergency Response Team, which is that pointy end that goes out to the event, these events, we can reach back here to all of the expertise that exists here, virologists, um, bacteriologists, many disease experts here, and the platforms that we use are just that they're platforms that we can quickly put our novel assays on. So if there's a new virus variant or a new thing detected, we can rapidly create a new assay and put it on our open array platform. Maybe it's my Canadian privilege showing, but when it comes to healthcare, I've come to just expect it to be there. Similarly, in an emergency, I just sort of assume that the health systems and processes are in place to keep me and my loved ones safe and in good health. This peek behind the curtain of our national emergency preparedness system, at least these two components of that system, was reassuring. I think I appreciate that the system is constantly evolving to meet the needs of the country and that it's a continuous process of assessing and reassessing the risk to public health and safety. I'm also struck by the elaborate dance of it all. There are so many groups involved, from PHAC to law enforcement, from provincial healthcare systems to individual scientists. It's such a big, complex system. All these pieces need to, and seemingly do, talk to each other, share expertise, and work to a common goal. I sometimes struggle to get my kids off to school, get to the gym, and get dinner on the table on any given day. So to say I'm a little impressed, well, that's an understatement. Our public health and emergency preparedness system is really an extension of our healthcare system, the very same system you're an integral part of. So maybe someday in the future, you'll grab a hockey bag full of lab supplies and go off and save the country. You know, Jack Bauer style. The Objective Lens is the official podcast of the Canadian Society for Medical Laboratory Science and is produced by Michael Grant and myself, Kathy Bowers. Writing by Michael Grant, Kate Hendricks, Natalia Harhai, and Kathy Bowers. Administrative support by Redmilla Minor. Technical support by Kartik Desai. If you like this or any of our other episodes, please rate them and like our podcast. We appreciate your support. Also, click on the subscribe button so you'll automatically be notified of our new releases. 
If you're a medical laboratory professional, you can take a short quiz after each episode. Upon completion, you'll receive a certificate that verifies professional development hours. Access the quizzes at podcast.csmls.org. While on the website, you'll find other great materials for each episode, like links to relevant articles. Have something to say? Feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook using the handle at CSMLS. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.